Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. So, sorry for this episode being late. Real-life problems came up. I lost a day or two in from dismotivation, but I'm back today. And to cover what happened last time, we went over the acceptance and subsequent issues with the Peace of Prague, along with the majority of the princes accepting it, with exceptions in the form of Hessen Castle and the Hilbron League. Both of them presented issues, one political, one military. The Swedes also came more into the fore to assist them, the Hessen Castle people specifically, in the Hilbron League, though that came to less than a success once the forces were needed elsewhere and the Hessen Castle forces had to retreat. But the peace was nominally accepted, but the war was still continuing, and as I will cover in this episode, it's going to be a rocky couple of years. But with that covered, let's get started. One of the side effects of the amnesty issue of the peace is that it allowed Oxenstierna to claim it went against German liberation. Sweden had been more and more for peace, like internally, since the loss at Nordlingen, and even Oxenstierna had become disillusioned with the war in Germany by this point. It was kind of messy, they weren't necessarily going to be succeeding, they couldn't see an end out of this, like, without honorable, well, they were trying to find an honorable way out, but I'll cover that later. And a quote from him, covering his disillusionment, is this, quote, The Polish war is our war. Win or lose, it is our gain or loss. This German war, I don't know what it is, only that we pour our blood here for the sake of reputation and have not, but in gratitude to expect. So while the Swedes, you know, did pillage and loot and all that, they didn't feel like they were getting treated well, which, you know, they probably earned that with the way they acted, but you can understand from their perspective at the very least. This piece... The Peace of Prague was also a benefit to the Emperor, which also adds to the fact that it was more of a success than the Swedes had ever done in the war. Well, not that they had long-term gains, but it had been a piece of policy that did a lot to secure the internal stability of the Empire. The Emperor achieved more in this peace than if he had won two battles of Nordlingen. Nordlingen was a major battle, and losing it kind of changed the tide of the war for a while, so you can see why he would say that. But the Swedes tried to spread documents emphasizing the seeming altruism of the war in Germany, even if there was internal bitterness as they couldn't leave dishonorably or without getting anything. They wanted something. Saxony became the target of propaganda once it was clear that they were going to oppose Sweden, with a German writer, Chemnitz, writing a scathing criticism accusing Johann George of dishonoring Gustavus's sacrifice. We all know his political posturing in the propaganda war, but it's certainly a damning criticism for someone who believed Gustavus was here to save them, looking at it from on the ground or commoner level, who wasn't aware of the politics back in this war. And funny enough, Sweden tried to use a language of proto-nationalism, like the emperor, stirring up feelings of a German unity as a people. A little more Protestantism, but the concept of, you know, focusing on the Germans as a people rather than the individual electors and the like. However, he did fail, well, they failed to try to associate the Peace of Prague with Spanish tyranny, and appeals to confessionalism, which is the whole religious aspect of the war, faltered in the face of their alliance with France, which would undermine any attempt to stir up religion as a motivation. Sweden was looking for an honorable way out of the war, just trying to keep a few Pomeranian ports a far cry from their plans when they were at the height of their power under Gustavus. The Swedes were in a bad position, their southern and western armies either destroyed or taken by Bernhard to France. 3,000 men were stranded in northwest Germany, with another 4,000 at Erfurt. The main army had only run 26,000 under Benair, with 11,000 garrisoning Pomerania, meaning he effectively had 15,000, which was a far cry from the numbers they had years before. And most of those forces were either Germans or mercenaries, with less than 3,000 Swedes or Finns in the army, which was the professional core of it as I mentioned when I covered the army structure of Sweden. One downside of a professional army, especially early in their implementation, is that replacing them is expensive and you need to have a constant rotation of troops coming in and out. Nowadays, we have much more people in an army. We can theoretically swap them in and out much easier, but back then, when this is sort of newish to Europe, it certainly was a lot harder. Sweden also had a four bad harvests, which left little money to give the army relatively, so the army certainly wasn't happy at this. 
But on the topic of peace, Ferdinand's ability to take Sweden's allies was affected by his willingness to offer a fair and realistic terms to those German electors. Johann George was left to run that, fighting back against his criticisms by asserting he was looking for peace over anything else to stabilize and save the empire, and peace was the best option for that. It helped him that Sweden had been cruel to Germans as well, him using Swedish plundering to help assert his cause. He also forwarded the idea of a German identity as a non-religious identity, which would have long-term success by the end of the war, but in the short term it ran into major difficulties. Because Johann George couldn't denounce Swedish allies, German allies, because he hoped they would defect if they saw the error of their ways or something like that, so he couldn't accuse them because that would push them more towards Sweden. This whole plan to try to use propaganda to turn the Swedes' allies back against them was a strategic mistake, as it allowed Sweden to get breathing room, as Saxony was not willing to initiate major military actions during this period. And the announcement of the peace caused a number of German officers to create a committee to negotiate, as they were disgruntled due to the current state of the war, the officers being part of the Swedish army at this point. Many had lost their promised money from Sweden due to their defeat at Nordlingen, and had an out due to getting orders from the emperor to return to imperial service. This was tempting to men but they would also lose the Swedish back pay, and even if they left Swedish service, there was no promise of reward from the Empire. A lot of the good lands had already been given out, and not all these men would be treated well, even if they accepted this new order and they weren't punished for it. So the loyalty of these officers was based on dealing with the officers' demands. Oxenstierna made a show of negotiating with them, but his real intention was to keep the German ports without alienating the Germans. So he had his demands to 4 million talers to pay off the army, and to set a withdrawal plan to leave the HRE, which was unrealistic to say the least as this would also be the term that the restoration of the Empire would be set to 1618 lines, which was not possible at this point, as we've covered before. Things were just too different at this point. You couldn't go back to that time period. So that was not helping. It's unrealisticness. But Johann George wasn't much better. His offer of 1 million talers to be paid by Saxony and Protestant Germans as a price for Sweden giving up all their claimed territory. Because Sweden wouldn't give up territory. They still wanted some of it. So this peace offer was not the best on either side. The officers, however, saw their interests weren't being represented, and they sent their own representative to Johann on August 19th, Johann putting pressure on the Swedes by demanding they leave Magdeburg. He then gave the officers the real terms of the peace, and with that, they seized Oxenstierna when he arrived at their camp, demanding concessions out of him if they're going to keep serving. It was called the Powder Barrel Convention, taking place on October 21st, 1635. Oxenstierna agreed to not make peace until the officers were consulted, and include the officers' contentment in their war aims, so these guys wanted some financial payout if they were going to peace out of the war. Another complication for Oxenstierna and his political control, but realistic from the point of view of on the ground and why those guys would want their pay. I mean, I'd be the same. It's dealing with any sort of leaving and severance pay from a job or something to that effect. The Imperials would give, as far as this point was, really these officers nothing. I mean, they weren't going to be punished, probably, but they would also not necessarily get rewarded, and you didn't want to leave the war being unrewarded or at least financially secure. I mean, these guys probably didn't expect to be, like, praised and covered in money, but they wanted something to come out of this. They didn't want empty hands. However, these officers were still suspect in their loyalty, as one of them led to the defection of Wilhelm of Weimar's troops on August 24th, four units defecting to Saxony while the rest dispersed. The town of Erfurt was still held by Sweden, but Johann George advanced with his own troops to enforce ultimatum about Magdeburg, the city in a worse position due to the Elector of Brandenburg accepting the peace, which would open up the flanks of the city, at least to advance into. Benair retreated north to a more secure position at Stendal, leaving five regiments at Magdeburg by September 28th. So those were the garrison forces. Oxenstierna also fell back to Wismar, a more secure hold during this period as well. This whole peace and France and all this was just confusion and 
Everyone's trying to find the new rhythm of this war and what's going on. And this whole thing is kind of chaotic as no major battles had really been fought at this point. At least in this little phase at this point. Saxony was having issues pressing what they wanted to get done. The rest of the Imperial forces were needed elsewhere against France. You can see how this is complicated. But back on the war front, Johann used the officer's discontentment to open up the delegation at Schoenbeck on the Elbe. His troops then overran Halderstadt. Johann George increasing his offer to 4.5 million talers to be paid directly to the generals under sweet under Sweden's forces, but it didn't push much, the army that is, until he got an imperial envoy ordering General Baudison to go on the offensive. Johann, however, expected the German regiments to stay neutral, which wasn't as reliable as he wanted it to be. Brandenburg and Lundberg units joined the forces, and they advanced downstream, taking Werben by October 17th. Benair didn't trust his German soldiers at this point, which I can understand, considering the chaos Sweden was in, especially after the whole mutiny. So he retreated to Mecklenburg through Domitz. The Saxons tried to cut off his retreat with 7,000 men on the right bank of the Elbe, but they were ambushed and attacked by 5,000 Swedish troops, causing the Imperials to lose around 5,000 men in being forced to retreat. Benair gained authority in this victory, even if it was small, but he decided to continue to fall back to Malchin, which was behind the Pomeranian Lakes. This was a better defense position, and it would be much more easy to hold, even if retreating would might look bad, which the victory at this point would be good for anyone. They just wanted something. This victory, while not major, it boosted a flagging Sweden, and small victories can count for a lot in war, and with the right allies, the situation would improve. And going back to the officers, they were waiting for what Poland would do once the truce of Altmark would expire, as that would happen in September 1635. The new king on the throne, Władysław IV, was more pragmatic than his father and offered to renounce his claim for payment, claim to the Swedish territory and the Swedish throne for payment, but that was denied. So when his war against Russia turned into his favor, gaining the lands he claimed, he convinced the Sejem, the governing body, to go to war with Sweden. In, in 1633, he had allowed Ferdinand cavalry from Poland as a sign of good faith. This happened at a bad time for Sweden and France, as France was at war with Spain now, and Sweden would now have to fight a two-front war, which is never good as anyone to play like a 4X game or any sort of strategy game. Two, two front wars are bad. Oxenstierna sent 20,000 men to reinforce the Prussian garrison, which is the territory that they took from Poland, but he cannot hold against two fronts realistically. And to avoid a two-front war, he agreed to an extension of the Altmark truce for 26 years, being forced to give up major concessions at Stumdorf on September 12th in a meeting mediated by France. The biggest part of this was he had to give up pretty much all their gains that they slowly took from Poland from the war decade ago, which left Sweden's imperial ambitions focused on the war in Germany, which was not as certain as the war with Poland had been. And giving up those imperial territories must have hurt, especially since they were trying to become an empire, which they would later on, but you have to play with what you have. Trying to hold out against Poland in that area would be rough, as the professional army was in rough shape, they needed to get more troops, and that would take time. The Polish king had hoped to exploit this new weakness, to strengthen his bond with Ferdinand by marrying Ferdinand's daughter, Cecilia Renata, but his nobles had lost their desire to attack Sweden by 1637. And keep in mind, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which is what I mean by the Polish, wasn't a monarchy like the others, as it was much more democratic, what we call it nowadays. The various nobility had a lot more power to vote on decisions. It wasn't an absolute monarchy or anything. The nobles voted for their king, and if there was enough disapproval among the nobility, he really couldn't get anything done. He also managed to hurt his relationship with the HRE during this time period by negotiating with England and France separately, and he also managed to hurt his relationship with Denmark 
as he raised Prussian tolls, which would hurt their shipping and their trade. So he was not burning bridges, but he was definitely weakening them. And when he tried to raise 30,000 auxiliaries for Spain and Flanders, that was blocked by the Sejem in 1641. So with the truce still being applicable, this effectively contained the war to Germany, saving Sweden, even if it cost them dearly. Well, not Sweden as like a power, but Sweden's ability to actually fight the war was much more intact without having to deal with, you know, Poland. And sometimes keeping a war to one front is better than trying to fight two, as the PLC was a major military power at this time, and the war would have been rough at a minimum for Sweden. And the PLC was going to be a major military power for the next half a century or more before things are going badly for them, which, if anybody knows, like Frederick the Great, Maria Theresa, Poland doesn't get the good end of the stick there. Poland is a rather picked-on country. But the biggest effect of this truce was it allowed Oxenstierna to move Tortensen and 10,000 men from Prussia to reinforce Germany. Tortensen was a general who had gotten sick and captured a few years earlier, having recovered in 1635. He was one of the kind of hopeful rising stars. He was an artillery general. He was definitely a much bigger part in this war, as he is more involved now. His arrival boosted morale for Bonaire, who along with the arrival of a shipment of fresh clothes, which for a soldier is way more important than you think. You know, nice boots, clean shirts, just more supplies is always nice to have. The reinforcements arrived in October 1635, and with them, Johann George fell back to Berlin, Bonaire retaking Werben and relieving Magdeburg. The situation was roughly back to how it had been during the summer of this year, but Sweden was now back on a better foot, and the war was back in full swing again, and the long, dragging war would create more destruction, although it wasn't as bad as the early 1630s, which was generally regarded as the worst destructive part of the war. People were a bit more tired by this point. So France was pushing back on their own land, Sweden was recovering, and Saxony was falling back. Poland had also failed to assist the Empire, which left the war more or less the same mess it was before. But we're going to stop here, as next time we will cover the Treaty of Wismar and the Battle of Wittstock. So I hope you're excited. I want to thank you all for listening, for keeping me coming back to work on this. Social media links will be in the description box or on the links themselves. You can email me at 3decot at gmail.com. Reminder that I have a Patreon if you wish to support me, and I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>